Welcome to the very first episode of Religionless Church. I'm super excited to be a part of this journey with you, and I hope to bring you great quality content that will help you and myself explore a world and explore a Christianity and a faith and a spirituality that is what I think would be religionless. So let's talk about that for a second. What do I mean by religionless church? So in the 1940s, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the late German theologian, thought of this idea of religionless Christianity. And he was killed uh, about a year before, or a year after, rather, when he started writing about those ideas. And so he never really was able to talk much and explore more about what he meant by religionless Christianity. However, a number of people have kind of taken on that term and developed what they think maybe what Bonhoeffer meant by that. So I'm twisting that a little bit and adding church and, or replacing church with Christianity. And I'm exploring the idea of what does it mean to be a church in the world that would be religionless. So I am going to be talking with different guests who I think are finding a way or creating a way in the world where the church can be religionless. So we'll find more and more about this as we move on. But I want to first introduce the very, very first guest on Religionless Church. His name is Doug Paget. Doug is an author, a speaker, an organizer, and a pastor. And to me, he's a mentor and friend. Doug has authored books like A Christianity Worth Believing, Flipped, Church in the Inventive Age, Preaching Reimagined, Church Reimagined, and many, many more. Doug has been a what, what I would consider a church innovator. He has really thought about what we're going to be talking about today, and he has thought about ways the church can be that what I think would be religionless. So I'm really excited for you to meet Doug if you haven't already met him. And if you do know who Doug is and have maybe read his work or has, have followed much of what he's doing in the world, I'm really excited for you to be able to listen more about what Doug has to say about Religionless Church and what he's doing in the world right now. I also want to point out that the music you'll hear throughout the episode is by a really good friend named Hannah, and she has her own solo act called Formerly Bodies. She just released a new EP in 2016, and you can check out that music on the description in the links in the description below. All the music that you'll hear is actually from that EP, and so I'm really excited for you to be able to listen to a lot of the great music that she has produced and created, and make sure you definitely check her out. She's doing some great and wonderful work in this world. I also want to point out that you can find more episodes in the future after this first episode on my website, masonmeninga.com, M-A-S-O-N-M-E-N-N-E-N-G-A.com. You'll be able to find that link in the description below as well. And you'll be able to find all the links to both Doug and to Hannah's band, 
formerly bodies. I also want to make sure that this podcast does the best it can be so I can keep bringing you the best quality of content. So make sure you give us a rating below, whether that's an iTunes or whatever service that you use, stream podcasts. All the ratings that you give definitely helps this podcast and others like it. So definitely make sure that you give us a rating and tell us what you think about the show. So sit back, relax, and I really hope that you'll enjoy this episode of Religionless Church. For our very first episode of Religionless Church, we have Doug Paget here with us today. Doug is an author, a speaker, an organizer, and a pastor at Solomon's Porch in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So Doug is many different things to many different people. And for me, he's a mentor and a friend. But I'm more curious, who's Doug Paget to Doug Paget? Oh, what a question. Who is Doug Paget to Doug Paget? Um, you know, I am a firm believer in the uh, social construct theory of identity. So I, I'm many things. I, I don't think there's a true me. I don't, I'm not one of the believers in a true person. That you, uh, So some theories of the world are that there is a true you, and that then is wrapped and um, encased inside of all your social constructs. And what you need to do to be a healthy individual is to rid yourself or to strip away that social structure around you to find the true you, the mm-hmm. real the real you. Some people, for them, that's their spirituality. That's what they do in spirituality is they get rid of the perceptions that other people have of them. They pursue their own trueness. Mm-hmm. I think we are, um, for any human, based on any human experience, we are only that which we are in relationship to others. So as a re- that's my theory of social constructed identity as a, as a relational uh, matter. So I would say that I am... Um, I have different relationships with myself, even. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. Right? So uh, there's this new theory that I, that's new to me um, that my wife Shelly has stumbled onto and I've been toying around with. And it's based on family systems theory. So do you know that family systems, like about how you would, if you're doing therapy work with an individual, okay. you would want to recognize, well, you play a role in your family. Okay. Yeah. Right? So I come home and I'm a husband. So I have that husband mm-hmm. relationship. And then that husband relationship is also a father relationship and right. a neighbor relationship. And so if you're going to do therapy work, they say you should pay attention to the entire family system. Well, there's a theory that says inside of each of us, there's like this whole family of identity, mm-hmm. who someone is in their, in their identity. If this were to get really unhealthy and sort of go uh, into some psychosis, you might call it multiple personality mm-hmm. disorder, right? that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The idea is that all of us have these many personalities inside that make us up, this collection, this mosaic of personalities that make us up. And what we're doing at any given time is different personalities are have vying for power with one another like they would in a family system. Right. The son's trying to overcome the older brother, the, the right. daughter's trying to deal with her mom. Well, inside of every person, this theory suggests, there's this way of thinking about um, a person being many personalities. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I find all that really interesting. So right now, like your, your question is <laughs> a great one, right? So, okay, well, right now, the personality of Doug as a professional person that is talking about professional things is in play. That personality right. has come to the surface. Yep. So that's a real me. I'm like, I'm really that person. I really do that. That's not a false me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not the only me that someone would ever see. Mm-hmm. So the family systems people would say, well, what happens is when you go home, you tend to revert 
to other right. uh, versions of yourself. This you play a role. You take that same thing within an individual, and when you get in your car, this other personality sort of comes to the surface. Right. Right. Uh, for some people, they drive differently than the rest of their temperament is, or they get to work and another personality rises up, right. or they eat certain foods and their chemical response. Um, is like they eat fiery food and something else kind of comes up in them. Or, mm -hmm. So uh, this theory suggests, wow, you're managing a lot of personalities at different times and you should recognize all of those so that you're not living with inner turmoil with oneself. Because the inner, inner life of uh, struggle or self-hatred or um, some sense of self-down-talking, um, one way to think about that is different personalities that are saying, oh yeah, you know that, that person that you are sometimes, that's not the best person. I'm the best person, the one who tells you the mm -hmm. truth, not the one that lies to you and tells you that you're okay, but the one that tells you, you know, that you're a, a failure or the other way around, that you're a success. Mm -hmm. Really, I find it extremely interesting. about. And then when you think about spirituality, it might be that we have a certain spiritual uh, personality. Mm. Think about that for a minute. So then you, some people might call this like a sin nature or a saved nature, like a right. nature yeah. is another word you might use for this, where this one kind of temperament sort of comes up and then there's these other. So you, you have one that calls you a hypocrite, but the other mm -hmm. ones are like, no, we're just, there's just different sides to me. They're, I'm, I'm a complex person. So I really like that. So yeah, so I'm, I'm many, I'm many people. Like, I think we all are. This is, right. the, this is the point I'm trying to make. I think we're all many right. peoples. many hats and personalities that you did wear was at one point you were a part of this thing or this movement or this conversation called the emergent movement or emergent conversation or the emerging church movement or conversation and what I am interested in is knowing some of the background behind that because I think some of the background behind what you were doing with the emergent movement really plays into what we're trying to do here on Religionless Church. Finding a sort of church or way of organizing the church that seems to be outside the bounds or the walls of the establishment of organized religion. So can you give us some background on, on some of what you saw going on with the emergent church and what that all entailed? All right, so back in the late 1990s, a number of us who had been talking about spirituality, religion in the United States, uh, social uh, movements, community formation, all of that, uh, a group of us, um, mostly from the white evangelical communities and the white Protestant mainline traditions, the smattering of some Catholics and soon some people from uh, Jewish and Muslim communities, but primarily Christians from the evangelical side, the white evangelical side of the white mainline press. We're talking about um, the influences of broader society on religion in North America. And we were noticing that there were a lot of uh, factors that were influencing many other segments of our society that were also affecting religion, but people in religion were not as attuned or interested in noticing those influences. Mm -hmm. So we talked about change in philosoph philosophical thought that came out of postmodernism. Right. We talked about change in economies and how people were uh, organizing their economic lives and how that was impacting you know, everything from political parties to social clubs to um, uh, uh, 
businesses, allegiances, all these things. And we knew that was really going to deeply affect religion, that people were thinking about their religious experience much differently. Right. So we're taking all of these kinds of factors, uh, interpersonal social dynamics that were happening, social trends, and saying all of that influences religion. Like, religion's not immune from any right. of that. Religion is a part and parcel to all of that. It's one of the players. And it's also one of the um, uh, pieces that are affected by all this, because that's how mm -hmm. systems work. All systems of societies and cultures influence each other. So a bunch of us were saying, those issues really matter. And we said, so in that cultural shift and change, some kind of religious experience is going to come to the surface. So we thought about and tried to coin a number of different phrases to think right. about what would capture this moment and period of time. We ended up using a term called emergent, um, primarily for its um, uh, agricultural and forestry usage. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was in this very basement we're sitting in right now where, the, where a decision was made on a, on a phone call involved about 15 or 20 of us, some people in this basement, some people um, on the phone, and we settled on a term, emergent village. Primarily, this was in 1999 or 2000, somewhere in there. Primarily, uh, the word emergent, primarily because that URL was available. We liked the term <laughs> village, and so we were looking at different words that had the word term emergent in it. The reason that some of us, particularly me, liked the term emergent was that in agriculture and in forestry, uh, it's a term that I was familiar with. So mm. I grew, grew up here in Minnesota, and, and when you grow up in the, the farm belt of the United States, the TV commercials you see as a child involve uh, talking about herbicides and mm -hmm. crop growth. And there's this term that I'd heard my entire life of some herbicides that were pre-emergent herbicides, meaning herbicides that would go into the plant growth before pre-emergent, before right. it emerged through the soil. So emergent meant, in the, in the agricultural term, that growth that had just come through the soil. It's the same mm -hmm. thing in forestry terms. Apparently people in forestry use two criteria to determine the health of a forest. And one of them is not uh, how the trees look uh, at their trunk level. The two things that mm -hmm. determine the health of a forest are the treetop growth, the okay. green growth on the top, so they'll fly over with helicopters or now drones or airplanes. Um, and look at the top of the forest so you could see that if a forest was dying, you could tell it from the top. The other place you'd look at the ultimate health of the forest was that which was growing up, just coming through the soil, hmm. the emergent growth. So the emergent growth in a forest is that growth that happens under the treetops, uh, but above the soil is often hard to tell. You may have to move some leaves aside to say, what's this forest going to look like 5, 10, 15, 50, 100 years from now? Mm -hmm. You determine that by the amount of emergent growth, that which is just popped above the soil. So we said there's something happening in religion that is coming to the surface. It's just come through. It's growing up inside of this environment of a field or in a forest. Mm -hmm. And that's going to determine what the health of, a, of this religion is going to be much more than the current existing growth. So what a lot of us were interested in was what was that growth that was just coming up to the surface? So we used the term emergent. It was also part of a larger conversation happening in science called emergence theory. Mm -hmm. So emergence, G-E-N-C-E, mm -hmm. is different than emergent, N-T. Right. And a lot of people fight about that. And some people even fight sure. about emerging. Yep. Emerging is also a third uh, cognitive category or metaphor. Right. So we were very particular, some of us, about emergent because it was referencing the kind of growth that was existing, not emerging as if it was something only coming from but growing from the same soil. So when we get picky about the language around this, someone like me would say, no, 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 we're not talking about what's coming from the existing religion. We're saying what religious expression is growing up 
up in the soil in which this current religious uh, context is also planted. So it's a subtle right. difference, but one is emerging from, and the other is, uh, emer uh, is emerging from the same soil. So there was a little distinction that some of us right. thought was important. You know, 99% of people didn't think that was important. But uh, So we were trying to talk about, some of us, the, the cultural change. And that's part of what changes between the, the little bickering that happened in that world between the emergent versus emerging church. Mm -hmm. um, that's partly why, to some of us, that conversation mattered. Like, we were trying to say, this is not what's coming from evangelicalism or what's coming from mainline Protestantism or coming from Catholicism. We're saying, what is it that's a modern-day religious expression that's growing up in the mm -hmm. same soil, but is going to be of different variety? Right. Something I've noticed in kind of my research or study into the emergent versus the emerging uh, camps is there was a distinct or some distinct differences in their artifacts and aesthetics between each. Each kind of had their own artifacts and their own aesthetics. And both kind of challenged each other quite a bit in different ways in their difference of artifacts and aesthetics. So what are some of those challenges that you encountered? What are some of those differences in between the emergent and emerging camps in their aesthetics and artifacts? Uh, yeah, okay, so I'll talk a little bit. Uh, let me give a little more of the context for uh, why, and I'll give you some examples. Okay. The, the context of why that matters, and it's a great question, a good thing for people to think about if they care about this topic, <laughs> is um, when you think emerging, you, you're referencing the current existing circumstance as being what's most important. Right. When you talk emergent, meaning the soil and coming through the soil, you tend to say, what's the new thing that's right. growing? And you're not as dependent on that which currently exists as language <laughs> like emerging, my, right. emerging from. Right. There's much more contingency on the emerging. Right? Yeah. So people in the emerging world were ones who would say, and a lot of friends who say this, like, well, whatever changes happen in this religious expression that we're talking about in this, and for me as a Christian, I would say in this, in this Jesus inspired agenda for the world. Whatever that is, it really has to be sure that it is it is connected to and keeps as priority that which was in the context in which it was emerging from. Mm -hmm. So they would say things like, well, there's some things we just know are, are going to stay true no matter what. Mm. Now, in emergent theory, you wouldn't talk so much about that. You wouldn't right. say that there's anything that this new variety has to have in order to have come from mm -hmm its antecedents in some particular way. So there were people in the emerging world tended to say, the majority of what we've, what we've done is going to stay the same, and we're going to make a small amount of change so that okay. it's basically improvement or innovation. But mm -hmm. the roots and what we're doing is essentially the same. Right. It's not making something new. It's making an adaptation or an improvement on something that currently exists. Mm -hmm. That tends to be the language. So they would say, like, well, we should we have to make sure we keep, and then they, the list would depend, you know, right. keep the Bible or keep uh, the creeds or keep right. the church structures or keep truth or something, right? They right. would say, we're going to decide that that thing has to be there. Right. And then whatever emerges from is going to most certainly have that as a as its DNA or something. Those of us in the emergent world said, well, I don't know, maybe those things will end up being there, but not they're not there by force. They're not going to be 
they're by demand. They don't have to be there. Maybe they are there, but have to be something like that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and man, that cause that rightly causes all kinds of consternation, right? People right. really, really worry about that. They really worry about if because if you think that thing that you're holding to is essential, well, you should care about that, right? So we'd have a lot of arguments, like my, the arguments I would have with people about this friendly, you know, theological arguments the way <laughs> professionals do um, in a field. It, my argument wasn't ever really about the thing that they were wanting to keep. Like it wasn't just about heaven or hell or the Bible or something. It was. Well, why do you think we have to have that? Like, right. why is it indispensable? Let's talk about mm-hmm. that before right. before we just grant its indispensableness. Let's say why is that thing have to be indispensable? So, so that was a that was a big part of the of the conversation between the emerging people and those who basically wanted to see that the the methodologies changed, but not the messaging, mm-hmm. um, not the message. Right. Um, so it was a lot of semantics, mm-hmm. but semantics really matter, right? Like you call somebody the wrong name enough times. You, you, yeah. You, if I call you Mackie enough, at some point you're like, hey, I know it's just semantics, but my name's actually Mason. Right? <laughs> I, I know it's just a word and doesn't really matter. Well, it matters if it matters to the person. So right. some people hear all this and they're like, oh, these people just get so embroiled in such semantics. Uh, well, so yeah, maybe some, maybe the words we use don't matter. And if they, as I like to say, if they don't matter, then let's just use mine. Right. And that's when you find out the words really do matter. So they're not just semantics. They are semantics and they and they do matter. So when someone says, I'm more emerging than emergent, that's meaningful. Like if someone takes mm-hmm. time to make a distinction between two closely um, uh, understood words, that should matter. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't just uh, say to someone, oh, well, that's that's I know that matters to you, but it doesn't really matter to the rest right. of us. No, it really, it really matters. So I don't mean to downplay the emerging versus emergent people because it really does matter to them. difference that I've really noticed between the two camps is their ecclesiastical structures. Both are very, very different in how they understand and value their ecclesiologies. And so, yeah, if you walk into Solomon's Porch versus, let's say, a mainline Protestant church, you're going to see some huge differences just from simply walking into the space much less actually participating in their worship or in what they do in their activity in their life. However, it seemed as if the, the, the whole talk, the whole conversation, or some of the controversial nature of the whole emerging and emergent conversation was around matters like heaven and hell and the Bible and authority and power and postmodernism and all these things that I think certainly played a part into some of the the challenges and the controversy around it. But most of the challenge, I think, and it wasn't really made explicit, but I think a lot of the challenge was actually in the difference between each other's ecclesiologies. So what what are your thoughts on that? What have you experienced with the difference between ecclesiologies in the emergent and emerging conversation? Well, in the, in that period of time where there were a lot of people who rightly felt that they held the ability to speak about what emergence village or emergent Christianity or emerging church was, and many people rightly got to say, no, this is what it is, right? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's the, that was that was one of the one of the ethos, right? Of it is it, yeah, I don't know, it's not anybody's, it's everybody's, and if you want it, you know, you should you should make it yours. Um, my contribution in that world was I thought that 
changing the ecclesial methodology was among the more important things that we could do. Mm-hmm. I am a message and method um, uh, person. So I think the two are together. Right. It's very McLuhan, right? Mm-hmm. I think you, you very difficult to have a changing message of, say, participation or inclusion or generosity. Quality. If, you, yeah. quali- if your methodology is that well, only some people get to do things. We select the certain kinds of people. There's punishment if you behave wrongly. Mm-hmm. The, it, you, it's very hard to have a message of inclusion and a method of, of let's say, uh, uh, ordination. Right? You, I don't think you can have both of those things. And right. some people listening to this would say, "God, that guy just will not quit with that fight. Right? <laughs> he's been he's been having that fight." And I really think it matters, right? I don't think you get to have an ordained versus non-ordained, and then say, "And we're inclusive." No, well, you're, you're in a power dynamic, right? Right. So it really matters to me. Uh, didn't really matter to everybody, but some of us in that world thought the methodology was most important. Now, there are a lot of people who would say, well, Doug, you haven't gone nearly as far in a methodological change as you should have. Some mm-hmm. of those people are the ones who organize uh, uh, um, like living uh, living uh, uh, communities where people live together, mm-hmm. like some kind of new monastic way. Right. They would say... Oh, dude, you guys are such a church, like <laughs> Solomon Sports, like you own a church building, you have a separate budget that people contribute to, you have staff that are paid, you meet on Sundays, now for the love of the Lord, you meet in the morning, I mean, come on, it's just church by a different, by a different package. Right. That's a great, that's a great pushback, right? So they would say, you haven't left behind, an, you haven't made an ecclesiological shift mm. in your spirituality at all. You've rearranged the furniture, quite literally, <laughs> rearranged the furniture, right, from, a, from rows that face the front to concentric circles that face the center. Big whoop-de-doo, right? Uh, that's a good pushback. And other people have even said, like, I want to have an entirely non-organized expression of religion. So so even mm-hmm. on the continuum of those of us who really wanted to change the ecclesial structure, uh, for some people, we're way in the innovative, right. creative side. And to others, we are way on the... Uh, the, the tried and true. You're just like every other, just like every other church. So mm-hmm. that even exists on a continuum. I think it really matters. I think Christian, the, the story of Christianity, as it was sort of rooted in the Jesus narrative, that early Christian narrative mm-hmm. of spirituality, is not held well at all inside of the ecclesial structures that we have today, especially those coming out of the the mid fifteen uh, hundreds uh, to the mid two thousands. I don't mm-hmm. think it. I don't think that way of organizing captures the ethos and spirit of the spirituality that Jesus was uh, calling humanity to at mm-hmm. all, and that, and that should change. I'm, I'm a big fan of churches in our current 21st century mm-hmm. modality. I, I think people organized in clusters of individuals that have locations and money at their disposal that they're sharing together and are interrelated to each other is a great organizing principle. Right. I think churches are a fantastic organizing principle. I think they really run the danger of not being a very good, a very worthwhile expression of a community that can hold the, the spirituality. So we have to hold those two in tension all the time. So I'm all for churches, but not because I think church is the hope of the world. I think it's a great way to organize. Mm-hmm. Like if you were going to start a spiritual movement, one of the things you would say is, wouldn't it be great if all over the world there were small to large groups of people who were organized to act together uh, with one another. They were meeting once a week. They had pooled their resources so they were ready at a moment's notice that they could act on something. They're constantly telling a story. They're innovating new ways of express Like all the things that churches do, right? Right. Like if they would just keep doing that stuff, they're, they're a great organizing principle. So, so mm-hmm. I think churches should change, um, uh, but I don't, I'm not a big fan of let's just move them all into house churches or because I just think that's not as effective a way to organize people. I think it's a bad organizing principle. Like when I, when I get into a little tit for tat with my house church or spiritual community, you know, monastic community friends, um, it's usually my my point is just, yeah, I mean, I think we should all have what you guys are getting at for the ethos, but I think the organization of that is not very long lasting. It's not very easy to mobilize. I don't think it's going to 
it's going to last very mm -hmm. long. Uh, and not that it has to. Like, there's a lot of, you know, a banana is a fantastic fruit, and it's not meant to last very long, right? <laughs> doesn't mean it's not good. Especially when you put them in front of me with some peanut butter. They're all it's yours. Done. Yeah. So there's been a lot of studies and reports on this idea of young people leaving the church in droves. We see this constantly, and there's always these questions and asking of why this is happening and why now. And I kind of have my suspicions of, of why we're seeing this. And I think one of those suspicions is that there is a disinterest or a lack of engagement with the current ecclesiastical structures that we have in, in most of American Christianity. And I think that there needs to be a changing of the tides completely of our ecclesiastical structures. And I think Solomon's Porch and with what you've been a part of and what you've created with the Emergent Conversation starts to tap into that. And so I'm kind of wondering, do you think, let's say, 50 years from now, that that sort of ecclesiastical structure that you've imagined and, and kind of helped spurred on, do you think that that's going to find itself to kind of come to more of a fruition of being kind of the more broad way of being the church in the United States of America in 50 years from now? Or do you think it will have any impact at all 50 years from now or yeah what are your what are your thoughts of the the sort of ecclesiastical structures that you've been imagining do you think that they will have a a say or a viability in 50 years from now i i would say no i don't i don't think so um uh, i think it's too much of an in-between for most people it's too much like this and not enough like that mm. Uh, so I know I think it's going to be more rare. Um, I think it's going to be a little bit more peculiar. I think it's going to be like in, a, in an ecosystem of animals. I think it's going to be more like the you know the gray wolf that there's mm. they exist, but there's not all that many of them. You don't see them very often, or like you know a Kodiak or something, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah, I mean they sure they. Exist. I don't think it's going to be a yeti. You know, it's not an imagination or something <laughs> that doesn't exist. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be. I don't think it's the the house cat. It's mm -hmm. just going to breed and um, be in every house everywhere mm -hmm. so no i don't think so i'm you know a bit heartbroken by that but uh, mm. uh no i don't I, I don't think so um i don't know that it ever was supposed to be something like Salma's porch like i think it was i think it was in in the diffusion of innovation curve theory a place like Salma's porch was an early innovator that other people would look to and say oh i learned something there but and i'm going to take a portion of that but mm -hmm. it's going to become i'm going to do something else with it so i, I think there'll be a, a few of those you know in the numbers or right. hundreds of those uh, but I don't think it's going to be some mass mass shift. Um, what I think is has been happening, and it's going to continue to happen. Um, and part of the reason I'm not a, as enamored by generational theory, um, the, especially the 24 year pattern of generation theory right. that you get out of the generational theorists, which give us millennials that were preceded by you know mm -hmm. um, Gen Xers and preceded by 
baby boomers and all this nonsense. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's just not accurate. It, what, what people are describing most of the time are people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. That's what they're describing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you look at what people say about baby boomers, what they were saying about baby boomers in the 1990s. That's what they're saying about Gen Xers now. You look at what right. they're saying about Gen Xers in the 1990s. That's what they say about millennials now. It, it's like literally word for word the <laughs> same thing. They just swap out. Oh, these are kids that grew up with their parents working and back in the 90s it was these were kids whose parents were dual income like they just literally changed the words and say it's you know, yeah or you experience the terrors of september 11th and somebody else says i experienced the terrors of vietnam or i saw the shuttle blow up and mm-hmm. uh, i was a latchkey kid and i grew up going to daycare like it's the same thing right so anyway i don't mm-hmm. i don't buy it as giving us anything other than marketing language which is fine basically it's the language how do you market to 20 and 30 year olds right great um, but what we've been seeing since the 1940s the 1950s has been a sea change shift in religion being an ethnic expression that was manifest by its denominational brand. Mm. That's what we've seen. That's been the big shift. Vatican II had a lot to do with that, but mostly what had to do with that was people moving into urban environments and marrying someone from a different background, right. from their own their own religious, ethnic, or um, denominational background. That's a huge shift. So what's happened is people. What they mean by institutional is the kind of the brand named thing. Right. What I think has been happening is going to continue to happen is that people are going to pick and choose across a increasingly wide mosaic of options of how they're going to put their own spirituality together. They've been doing this for a very long time. Radio preachers allowed people to stay mm-hmm. home and pick and choose. Television preachers allowed sure. to happen. The internet is a lot. So this thing has been happening for a very long time. And that's increasing. And there's more people that can ramp up more spiritual contributions in more ways accessed by more people than ever. So the volume is incredible of mm-hmm. what people can choose from. And that might be something that's different for a 24-year-old now than a 24-year-old 35 or 40 years ago. You have more choices, but it's on. It's only a scale difference. It's not a sea change difference. So in okay. other words, there, yeah, there's more things to pick from. So it'd be easy for someone to say, oh, well, yoga has become a really big deal and stuff like, yoga was a really big deal in the 1960s and 70s. <laughs> like, that was a whole thing. It was a punchline to jokes and pastors worried about, about that stuff back then. Now, it's just more places and more common but it was a super big deal uh, back in the 60s and 70s. Um, in fact, yoga came to the United States in the 1930s, this kind of alternative spirituality. Mm-hmm. The late 1800s, the United States was riddled with alternative spiritualities. That's where you get the uptick of all kinds of religious spiritual movements, mm-hmm. the, the Church of Christ and the, um, the Mormons and uh, the rise of Seventh-day Adventism, all those kind of mm-hmm. normal, almost normalizing kinds of Christianity. And then all sorts of spirituality that was coming out of communities, the, um, of uh, small, uh, small groups of people living in community with each other coming out of Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these kinds of... I mean, this was happening like crazy. Um, new spiritualism was happening, the occult movement, like all that stuff in the 1880s and the 1980s and the 2080s. Like, that's just been part of the been part of the fabric for a long time. So I don't think we're in a situation where we should say things at one point were stable. Now we're in a point of destabled, destabilized right. Christianity. Like we say, it's never been stabilized in the United States. It's always been a mashup. There's a lot more options available to people and much easier uh, to, to find and to get to. And that thing that mattered in the 1880s and in the 1950s and the 1980s and the 2020s, that same stuff, uh, it still matters. Like, just because it's mm-hmm. been going on a long time doesn't mean it doesn't matter. So so that's my take on it. That's how I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to unfold and how it's going to... That's what I think is going on. Mm-hmm.
also in connection to some of the work that you were doing in the years past, you are now in the process of some other projects that you're currently working on. And one of those projects I know is a book. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about what you are writing about, what your book is going to be called, and what maybe you're hoping for in those who read this book? Yeah, thank you for asking about that. Available sometime in 2018, I hope. Um, It is a book that is a reflection on what Jesus may have been getting at in his statements that's recorded in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing. In fact, they'll do even greater works than these. That idea that Jesus's agenda for humanity was that they would outdo, do greater works than these, um, is something I think that matters to understand Jesus' spirituality Mm -hmm. in the 21st century. That what we should do is count the ways in which humanity is doing and outdoing the very things that Jesus did and counting their spirituality. So as someone who cares about the Jesus narrative, which I do, mm-hmm. I think that it matters and thinks it's a really important way for humanity to understand itself and its relationship to creation and God and one another. Um, that that way of describing the world and to uh, see ourselves as being on the same path, being in the way of Jesus in our lives, mm-hmm. um, while we do and outdo the things Jesus did. So what I chose to do is to take the seven miracles in the Gospel of John, and there are seven. Mm-hmm. They're carefully, in my view, they've been carefully curated in the Gospel. Um, they're chosen and selected for a very particular reason. Um, the, there are four Gospels, which a lot of people mm-hmm. know about, that are considered part of the canon, a bunch of other Gospels that aren't, but the four that are in the canon. Three of them are called synoptics or similar to each other because they basically tell the stories in roughly the same way and roughly the same stories. And then there's the Gospel of John. It doesn't. It has seven miracles and not a random set of them. Five of the miracles in the Gospel of John are not in the other Gospels at all. Mm -hmm. And two that are repeated, which is the feeding of the thousands of people on the hillside and walking on water, are so different in their meaning that they're almost different miracles altogether. Mm. So the Gospel of John has this really different set of miracles that are told, I think, in order Uh, in seven of them in a particular order for a particular reason to recreate a creation narrative. So the entire Gospel Mm. of John is trying to tell a story of a creation of a new kind of people, borrowing from the imagery of the story of Genesis, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, the Lord rests. On day seven in the Jesus arc of the Gospel of John is when Lazarus is freed from the grave. And so on that day, a new humanity is born. This Mm. this kind of idea, right? It's really great. It's a really great thing. So I think that's what's going on. So I take those seven to try to say, let's look at these seven as a framework for how humanity is supposed to live. And Jesus as the starting gun, not as the finish line Mm -hmm. of what spirituality should look like, says to humanity, get going and do and outdo these grand ways and metaphors of a way of living. And so I take all seven of them, which is, you know, the turning the water into wine at the wedding, which is a great story, but you're thinking as a miracle, really? Mm -hmm. It's a party trick, quite literally at a wedding party. Like how in the world is changing water into wine at some guy's wedding who misplanned his is wine allotment. Why is that a great miracle? Like, like if these miracles in the Gospel of John were supposed to be miracles that told us how great Jesus was as a one and only, never to be repeated, son of God, unlike anyone else, well, these miracles do not hold water for that. Get the pun there. And they don't even hold do wine. They, do they, well, I was just going to say, do they, they might hold water, but do they turn it into wine? Do they, do they turn that held water into wine? Um, you know, I mean, look, it, Jesus doesn't even fly in any of these miracles. And if you're trying to make a once in a in a in humanity story about a guy who can beat the elements, you don't have him walk on water or turn water into wine. You have him fly over the water. I mean, who, uh, right. You see what I'm getting at? Like mm-hmm. these these stories are not told to sort of exemplify Jesus's ability to overcome nature. There's something mm-hmm. much 
much more grand going on in these narratives. And that. So it's the water and wine. It's the healing of uh, a, a child from a distance, which is a really big deal. It's healing of a, of a man who's uh, unable to walk, who's sitting by the pools. Lots of water in these stories, by the way. Water into wine, mm-hmm. water at the pool, spit, walking on water. Water's got a lot yeah. to do with the narrative of the Gospel of John, which you have to buy the book to find out the secrets, <laughs> secrets to the water, secrets to the H2O. Uh, then you have the, um, the, the feeding of the 5,000, you have the walking on water, you have the healing of the man who's born blind with the spit of Jesus, and the resurrection of Lazarus, which actually, mm-hmm. by the book you find out, is not a resurrection at all. Mm. It's, not a re- it's an anti-resurrection story. Mm. The story of Lazarus is put in the Gospel of John to abuse people of the idea that they should wait for the resurrection. That's the greatest chapter I've ever written. Sounds a little Peter Rollins-y going on there. Like oh, yeah, flipping yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Pete, Pete will love this book. Speaking yeah. of which, I mean, yeah. you've written a few things about flipping things. Um, so, so anyway, what I'm trying to do is tell a story, an ancient story, connected mm-hmm. to a modern-day story. So what I do is I find take these seven stories, and I find people who are doing and outdoing them in modern day, and I tell the stories of those people. So the subtitle to the book, Greater Than, is How Ordinary People Are Outdoing Jesus and Why It's Good News. Mm. Or it might be, we haven't settled on the subtitle yet, How Ordinary People Are Outdoing Jesus and How You Can Be Part of It. One of those two things, something like that. But the whole the, the kicker is how ordinary people are outdoing <laughs> Jesus, right? The idea that you're going to outdo Jesus is something that Jesus has, I think, longed for from the very days of the mm-hmm. telling of the Jesus narrative. That's what it's always been about. Listeners and I get the book, and we're sitting in our respective beaches or homes or forests or wherever it is that we read books. When we're flipping through the pages and we're taking a sip of our water that now has become wine after a page or two, we will be reading words that you have given us, right? So as soon as you give us those words, it has left your control. It is now in more of our control, where we have to interpret these words into whatever it is that we interpret. So what is your hope for the way that the reader will interpret greater than? Yeah, I hope that people will be able to recast the imagination of their own life in ways that their Christian, Jesus-oriented spirituality wants to take the current life they're living seriously. So if you're told, if you begin with some sort of a notion that, well, there was a time when the Son of God walked the earth and did really great things, but that's not today, Mm. and that's not you, but get on with your life, do something meaningful, Mm. but it's not going to be that, then that story, that once-in-a-lifetime story that happened, really doesn't have any impact on you at all. I mean, unless it's Jesus proved himself in some sort of, you know, Joseph Campbell way on his hero's journey and then was approved by God and now there's some transaction that happens because Jesus accomplished something. Okay, that's whatever that is. That's mm-hmm. a thing, I guess, people could do. Uh, but if, if you want to say, no, like, I actually think I want to be a follower of God in the way of Jesus in the world. Like, that's the thing I want to do. I want to be part of a Jesus-y spirituality. Well, you're really left uh, with, without much to do. Mm-hmm. That's worth much, right? Um, so I, what I hope is that people will say, uh, will see, oh, my spirituality, my lived life is not less than, it's not more than, by the way, I make this big point in the book that greater than doesn't mean better than, right? but um, that you're supposed to see your life lived out in this way where you're not, you don't have this older brother or great uncle or grandfather in your life who was once the accomplished one and now you never really live up, but somewhere your dad really loved that one. 
Mm-hmm. And kind of loves you too, because you know love's like that. Like that's a terrible story, but it's a story a lot of people think about Christianity and spirituality. It's a yeah, it's a great, great tragedy. Wow. So that's what I'm trying to get people to to recognize is that to to recognize the great things that are done in someone's spirituality, in someone's normal lived life, and that they can find modern day spiritual miracle workers is what the Jesus agenda and the Jesus teaching calls us to do. Mm-hmm. So this, can I tell you what one of the chapters in there? There's this Love whole it. chapter in there about, about Jesus healing a, a child from a distance, right? What I mentioned before. It's an intriguing story on a lot of levels. By the way, none of the stories in the Gospels require, in the Gospel of John, require that the person who's the beneficiary of the good thing in the miracle story, there's none of them that require that person to have known anything about Jesus, have any knowledge of Jesus, or ever asked for it. Mm. So interesting. None of those things, none of them. None of them ask for any of it. It's fantastic, right? Uh, So the healing of the child from a distance is one of these, like kids somewhere else. And look, it's impressive that Jesus healed a young boy who was dying of a fever. That's impressive. What's more impressive is that we stop children from getting fevers in the first place. Taking child mortality rates and dropping them from 40% worldwide down to 7% worldwide is more miraculous than saving one child from one fever. Right. You know who's done the most good to stop children from having, from getting fevers and dying of fevers in the first place? Turns out it's not medical workers, it's not biotech breakthroughs. It's engineers and sanitation workers. Hmm. Almost all of the gains that we've seen around the world in mortality going from, in 1845, there was not a country in the world where mortality was above 45 years. Wow. That doesn't mean that people died at 45. It means if you take all the people who were born, children and adults, 45 years of age was the average that people would die. So a bunch of kids would die at age one and two and three, and some people would live to be 16, 17, and 80. So people weren't dying at 45, right? It's a mean, not not the age at which everyone would die. But that number, that if you average child death and adult death, nowhere in the world was it above 45 years old Hmm. in 1850. In 2017, there's not a country where the mortality rate is below 45. <laughs> Most, and only one place, Ghana, is where it's 45. Every place else, 60, 70, 81. Mm-hmm. We have doubled mortali- the mortality rate in the United States. In 150 years. Yep. And almost all of that is due to sanitation changes and to the, the work of, of engineers with producing clean water and moving sewage and garbage out of the flow. The people of dealing with our shit. The people dealing with our shit. The next time you drive by a porta potty delivery guy, look at a miracle, a modern day miracle worker. When a sanitation guy comes down the road, you don't think, what a miserable job. Those are miracle workers that are saving children from dying of, of fevers all over the world. It's incredible. And this is, I think, what Jesus is getting at in the Jesus agenda. If you think it's it's great that a child living somewhere in a distant place doesn't die of a fever, let's stop children from dying of fevers. Like, that's a compelling narrative. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, I mean, it literally takes people picking up garbage and digging sewer wells and digging for fresh water and creating all kinds of things around water and sanitation. It's fantastic. So ordinary people, garbage collectors, mm-hmm. they're, they're child lifesavers. Jesus so that's who? The, yeah. Who? Now, it's not that, and here's the thing, it's not that Jesus' thing wasn't meant to be uh, important and inspiring, right. but it's in the lineage. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's I just think it's so much, and you just go through all the miracles that way. The, all seven of them are they're a call for humanity to do the thing that's happening in that miracle on a much grander scale, and it's happening. That's the crazy thing. Every one of those miracles is being outdone on a daily basis, mm-hmm. even the Lazarus narrative. So you're you are I'm not now... telling you that one. You're gonna pay the nine ninety five to get to that Lazarus. How it's not a resurrection story, and how people are outdoing it even today.
So is that notion also what is driving your nonprofit that you're working on? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Uh, I mean, the, the, yeah, so I, I have an organization that I've started called Greater Things, which plays on the same notion that the agenda of God uh, should be that we're up to just as much or more good now than ever before. Mm -hmm. And I'm organizing this work to try to change the religious narrative in the United States because that's where I live, and that's a place that I think I have some uh, level of influence. I can think about what religion looks like in the United States. So I mm -hmm. try to work with leaders and uh, lay people alike and to create spaces and places for messaging and broadcasting of a more inclusive and uh, beautiful world and also doing work with uh, training and um, and organizing of people. So we have a number of projects that involve broadcasting and radio and uh, events and that kind of thing. And we do uh, school training, training people who want degrees and don't need degrees. We do um, uh, organizing of people into communities that are gonna uh, make a change in the world. So mm -hmm. that's, that's the work that we do. On your website for Greater Things, you have a little slogan that has this idea of greater things are possible. And so the first question that pops into my mind when I see that is, what is that greater thing that he hopes for to be possible in this world? So what is it? What, what is the greater thing that you hope for to be possible in this world? Yeah, so my hope is that greater things would be and uh, as we say, you know, one of our little slogans is that it's a small hinge that opens a big door. It's not a great line. I got that from my friend Samir. Awesome. Like greater things is a small hinge that'll open a big door. Uh, so the big door that we're trying to open is not just the agenda that we have. The greater things are possible. That notion, I hope that people will feel inspired by that belief across all the areas that they do their work in. So if they're working in art, I hope they believe greater things are possible. If they're working in food, I hope they believe it there. If mm. they're working in medicine, if they're working in education, if they're working in their family, if they're working on their own personal life and mental health, I hope the idea that the way things are right now is not the only way it needs to be. There's an other way, an other thing, another aspiration. There's something even more great than this that is possible. It's a very positivist uh, holding mm -hmm. philosophy of the world, right? So I clearly hold to a world that says, oh, things are better they're getting better. They're not good yet. They're better. Mm -hmm. And we need to keep working for the greater good by making things better. That's, That's a great line right there. I should write that one down. We should keep working for the greater good by making things better. It's wonderful. Trademark Deck Badge 2017. <laughs> As you know, the term religionless Christianity was a term coined by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the late theologian, German theologian. And before he was killed, he wrote a little bit about this idea of religionless Christianity in the world or the age to come. And many people have thought uh, different things about what he meant by this. And so 
I've kind of adopted that term and twisted it a little bit to think of more of the ways that we organize or the ways that we gather, the sort of ecclesiastical structures that may seem religionless. So I'm kind of using it as a, as a term of talking about a religion or a faith community that is deinstitutionalized, decentralized, and radical. That's how I'd like to put it. So, but that's kind of how I think of the term religionless church. What does religionless church mean to you? That was a big phrase that was around in the 1990s. It actually influenced um, very directly um, the phrasing that we used in starting Solomon's Porch, interestingly, Mm. as a contrary to that. One of the things that I didn't want to be part of was a religionless Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what I, where that went in the 90s, people who borrowed that phrase mm-hmm. and built on Bonhoeffer's stuff um, was to start talking about a kind of personal spirituality. They combined that later writing of Bonhoeffer's My Interpretation with his earlier Cost of Discipleship book, mm-hmm. which I think is mm-hmm. a disaster, and right. put that together into a individual, spiritual, personal life that you should right. have and not be worried about the external trappings of yeah. all this nonsense. So. That was a big deal rolling around the world that I was in, uh, kind of what would Jesus do narrative that was personal spirituality. So there's this phrase in the book of James where James says, religion that God respects or finds legitimate is that you care for orphans and widows in their distress and you keep yourself from being corrupted by a polluted world or society. Um, so when we started Solomon's Porch, we said we want to be the kind of church that does religion well because we want to care for orphans and widows in their mm-hmm. distress. And we want to keep ourselves from being corrupted by a system of nonsense that's going on in the world that tells us how we should be, specifically in religion, uh, mm-hmm. in that case. Um, so we wanted to be a kind of religious community, really pushing back on the idea that people wanted to have a spirituality that didn't care about orphans and widows right. and their stress. Now, I don't think that's what Bonhoeffer was getting at, but mm-hmm. by the middle 1990s, in my view, that's where that had gone. So I'm not sure that... Um, I don't think religion... Uh, uh, is the problem. I don't think people organizing their spirituality is the problem. Mm -hmm. I think there's what systems we choose to use to organize is the problem. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of ways that people organize. There's a lot of organizational theories. Organizing isn't the problem. Uh, Denominationalism could be the problem, or hierarchy could be the problem, or um, uh, 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 ethnic-oriented tribalism could be the Mm -hmm. organizing principle problem. lot of people are projecting those sort of things onto the term religion and that's why people are kind of or some people have kind of gathered around or want to kind of tightly wind themselves to the idea of religionless uh, because they want to kind of purge the the sort of negative stereotypes or the negative values that have been projected upon religion do you think that's kind of what's going on there yeah, like I would say, it would do us well to spend some time around some architects. So architects are interesting. They play an interesting role in our society. They figure out how to organize people when they're inside of buildings and houses. So an architect will tell you, look, we're, we can build a house that's not built like uh, a 1950s Rambler. 
We don't have to organize your rooms like that. We don't have to organize it like an 1890 farmhouse like we're in right now. We don't have to organize it like a, like a 1980s uh, suburban um, uh, split level. Like, mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways to organize, but let's not get rid of building houses. Let's find other ways to build mm-hmm. our houses. Tiny houses are a way to do that. Communal living houses. Like, there's a lot of ways you can build yeah. houses. Open floor plans versus separate rooms. Like, let's not suggest that we shouldn't organize. Let's suggest that the way that things have been organized haven't served humanity the way we want to. So let's organize in a way that's going to fit your life right now. Right, so there's a big movement in the, around the country to move back to condos and urban environments. Mm-hmm. So they're figuring out new condos. So my point being, I don't think we should get rid of organizing our religion. Mm-hmm. I think we should say, we need to organize our religion really differently. In fact, the least helpful thing to do is say, let's just not organize. Like, mm-hmm. Okay, there we go, done. Now, after that, now what are we going to do? Well, you're going to organize. Right? Right. Meaning you're going to decide, I'm going to listen to this person longer than I listen to that person, or I'm going to get together with these people. Like, that's what human beings do. This idea that we're going to live in some anarchy world in which has never existed and never can exist, because humanity depends on itself to organize. Right. And my anarchist friends, if they're listening to this, will say, like, that's not what anarchy means. <laughs> I know. Um, but I mean, the, the, the imagination that people have around anarchy, where everyone's just on their own, the sort of, right. sort of you know, Paul Ryan version of Ayn Rand nonsense yeah. that the Republicans are pushing down the throats of America these days. That kind of w- strangeism of independence and libertarianism mm-hmm. and all that. Um, well, you're going to organize in a way. And that's a way of organizing, I guess. But uh, So I, I'm not a big fan of let's not have organized, which organizing doesn't mean institutionalized. And institutionalized, mm-hmm. I think, has the tend- it means that there's a demand of an organization that overrides the needs of humanity. Mm-hmm. So a human, a more humanized, a more humanizing uh, way of organizing, I think, is what we need to lead to, not less organizing. Mm-hmm. So my push would be, hey, let's make the kind of religion we want to be part of. In other words, let's organize our spirituality into repeatable patterns with common symbols that people can attach to. For religion is that, right? Repeatable mm-hmm. patterns that are organized that people can attach to. If that's what religion is, let's do that in a way that's better for humanity, not worse for humanity, or worse for the planet, or mm-hmm. worse for somebody else. So, so that, that's my long answer to why I don't know that um, I get what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was getting mm-hmm. at. start wrapping it up here i was wondering where we can get connected with you i'm sure some of the listeners are wondering where they can get connected with you so where is it where can we get connected thank you for asking uh doug paget with one g and two t's p-a-g-i-t-t uh is the way to do it so paget on twitter dougpaget.com uh, takes you there greaterthings.us will take you to the organization mm-hmm. and solomonsporch.com but if you search for you know any of that stuff those websites sort of contain all the contact mm-hmm. and Facebook and Instagram and all the other good all the goods that all the other stuff and a list of the many books that I've written Thank you again, Doug, for being the very first interviewee on Religionless Church. 
You've certainly been inspiring in my life and I'm sure to many of our listeners. brilliant is Doug Paget. I mean, th- there's a reason why he is one of my heroes in life. He- he's just full of wisdom and nuggets, and he's so forward-thinking. I just feel like as if he is light years ahead of all of us in terms of what he hopes and envisions for in the church's future. So, again, I want to thank you for listening to the very very first episode of Religionless Church. I'm really excited to be on this journey with you. So again, please check out Doug and all the work that he's doing. You can find that below in the link in the descriptions. Also check out Hannah's music with Formerly Bodies. So again, you can look on the description for all the work that she's doing. I really hope you enjoyed the music throughout this episode. And again, check out my website, see what I'm doing, get connected with me on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram, and you can find all of that information on masonmeninga.com, M-A-S-O-N-M-E-N-N-E-N-G-A. And again, make sure you give us a rating. I would love to hear what you think about Religionless Church. Thanks again. Peace out, y'all. Thank mm-hmm. you.